From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The CDC estimates that about 70 million adults in this country have high blood pressure, and a lot of them don't even know they have it. We'll have the latest on diagnosing and controlling hypertension, including how you can track your blood pressure right at home. People are able and anxious to take care of themselves, to take charge of their own measurements and modifications even. The data are pretty strong that home readings tend to parallel ambulatory blood pressure monitors and give a better prediction of the long-term risk. Also on the program, a drug developed to save soldiers wounded in battle is now being used to reduce bleeding during routine surgery. And holiday allergies. Are you allergic to your Christmas tree? All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Managing high blood pressure. It can be a challenge. Maybe you're taking anti-hypertension medication, but sometimes it leaves you feeling dizzy. Meantime, you're trying to maintain a healthy weight by eating right and exercise, but you don't always succeed. In fact, it is hard to keep high blood pressure under control. Right. On top of that, you're concerned when you hear about studies that continue to warn about the link between high blood pressure and heart attack and stroke. Here to talk about some of the finer points of managing your blood pressure, including tips for monitoring at, at home, is Dr. Stephen Texter. Dr. Texter is a specialist in treating high blood pressure at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Texter. Thanks very much. It's yeah, like to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Now, we used to call this disease the silent killer, and I don't hear that so much anymore. Is there a reason for that? Well, it, you know, it's funny. It's dropped a little bit off the radar screen. I think people take for granted that this is one of the major treatable risk factors, and I think most family physicians are very tuned into it. What I think is a bit of a problem is that it's so easy to let go that there are so many other silent killers people tend to forget about blood pressure. Uh, But in fact, it's one of the most common chronic diseases Americans have to deal with, right? Absolutely. So explain blood pressure to us so we sort of understand the whole concept and and why it's important to keep it under control. Well, the way I describe it is that blood pressure is the pressure that your heart has to generate to move blood around, and it's the pressure that every blood vessel feels with every heartbeat. So what we're measuring is really the peak blood pressure is it with every contraction and then the runoff during diastole. So you, there are two numbers. There's a high number and a low number. And that's at different parts of the pumping cycle. The reason we worry about it is because that pressure on the vessels puts some wear and tear on them, that it roughs up the vessel. And especially when you combine it with high blood sugar or cholesterol, that starts to damage the vessel. And it's really the risk for stroke and vascular injury that's the main problem with high blood pressure. You mentioned the two different numbers, the high number and the low number, and we used to think one was more important uh, than the other in terms of controlling, but that's not true anymore, is it? It really isn't. It turns out that especially as people get older, over 55, it's the upper number that really is the predictor of trouble. It used to be the bottom number, diastolic blood pressure, and probably for very young people that's still a major issue, but... uh, Most people with high blood pressure are those that are developing it as they go through their 40s and 50s. Do most people have a pretty good idea uh, that they do, in fact, have high blood pressure and explain to us how you make the diagnosis? I mean, are are there a lot of people out there who don't even know they have it? That's always been an issue, and especially 
there's sort of a, a dark zone as people go through their 30s, often, especially men, don't go to doctors and really have very little chance to have it measured. Nowadays, there are measurement stations, for example, in Walmart, most of the drugstores. People can be checked. But I think especially as you go through your 30s and 40s, that's when blood pressures start to move up, and that's really when people need to be attuned to it. Because of the long-term side effects of of this disease, the deleterious effects of high blood pressure are cumulative, right? I mean, even if you... Got you, you had high blood pressure at 30, but you didn't get it treated till you were 50, it still would have done some damage. Well, that's true. And I think it's important to recognize that blood pressure goes up as you get older. So very rare to have somebody in their 20s with high blood pressure. But by the time you're 40 or 50, most people are drifting up. And by the time you turn 60, we're talking half the people on the planet have significant high blood pressure. Half of people age 60 have high blood pressure. Yes, they do. Need treatment. Absolutely. You had mentioned that uh, in the 30s and 40s, maybe men don't go to see the doctors as much. You wouldn't know if you had high blood pressure because for so long there are no symptoms. That's the problem, correct? Absolutely. Especially when you combine it with other risk factors like smoking. So smoking, little uh, sedentary lifestyle, gaining weight, Those are all kind of cumulative risk factors that leave you in trouble as you get into your 50s. We have heard more and more about a condition called Mm prehypertension. Now, what does that mean? Does it just mean you're a setup to get it? Well, that's an important point. um, With the last uh, iteration of the guidelines for blood pressure, people recognize that the risk is continuous, that, in fact, normal blood pressures are probably 120 and below, And there's this group between 120 and 140 that are almost certain to move up in the next uh, period of time. And that's why they're considered prehypertensive. And that's the time we recommend looking at lifestyle, limiting your weight gain, lowering salt intake, probably not treating them with drugs, but to recognize it, it needs to be watched. And that's why the label got put on as prehypertension. I get all confused when it comes to blood pressure because you don't know what is too high and what's all right or what's too low, you know, those types of numbers. And if I go to Target and I check my blood pressure, I don't even know what it, unless an alarm goes off that says, this is too high, I wouldn't know anyway what to do with it. How do you help patients to understand what their blood pressure should be and how often they should check in on it and what to do. How, how do you work with your patients in that way? And it seems like they change the numbers every once in a while about what your blood pressure well, really ought to be. <laughs> they do. And uh, that's, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, <laughs> there's no question that measuring blood pressure is hard. And actually people, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an art form. It changes with every heartbeat. So you have to realize that every time you sit down and have a blood pressure checked, it's likely you'll get a little different number. And so our recommendation is to have two or three readings. We usually throw out the first, and the last several will usually settle in and give you an average reading of what your blood pressure should be. And I think the guidelines are pretty clear that above 140 over 90, we begin to watch and worry about this. The treatment trials all actually required blood pressures over 150 or 160. So higher than we normally think, but their goal treatment level has always been below 140 over 90. And that's really, I think the closer you are to that, uh, the more you should plan to follow it and track it because it will go up over time. 
What are, uh, the risk factors? Let's talk about those a minute. And uh, I know uh, obesity is one of those. And so, uh, concomitant with the with the epidemic of obesity in this country, have you been seeing more and more people with hypertension? And aren't women more likely to get this uh, disease than men? Well, I think uh, there's no question there's a link with obesity and lifestyle and salt intake. And so all of those are real risk factors, as is smoking. And as those combine, the chance of having significant high blood pressure that will cause real trouble goes up substantially. Women may be a little more likely, but I I think over they're really protected from cardiovascular disease through their uh, cycling years. And premenstrual women tend to have less high blood pressure. And then it takes off after 55 or so the risk and the levels of blood pressure go up substantially. All right, hit us once more with the risk yeah. factors. Okay. People that are sedentary, people that are overweight, high salt intake, and family history. So people that come from hypertensive parents are much more likely to track at high levels and will develop high blood pressure early. And smoking was in there? Smoking, absolutely. All right, Dr. Stephen Texter is our guest. He's an expert on high blood pressure. When we come back after our break, we'll talk about the treatment of high blood pressure, including alternatives to medications, and we'll tell you all about monitoring your blood pressure at home. We'd like to say a special hello to our listeners in the greater Boston area who hear us on WNTK-FM in New London, New Hampshire. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with hypertension, high blood pressure expert, Dr. Stephen Texter of the Mayo Clinic. So, Dr. Texter, we've talked about the risk factors. We've talked about uh, a goal for getting your blood pressure down to a certain level. Now we want to find out how you do that. And I think a, a significant number of people do that with medications, correct? Absolutely. And do they work? They do work. Uh, I think we're lucky to have a group now of medicines that are generally well tolerated. Now they're all generic, so they're fairly inexpensive. But uh, finding the right combination or use of medication is always a challenge, and that's what we work with a family practice for. What do you do, though, with patients that are hesitant to go on a daily medication for the rest of their lives, and they don't want to do that? Do they have other options? Well, certainly lifestyle changes can really make a difference. And people that are in a weight loss mode or losing weight or people that are regularly exercising will have lower blood pressures, and it will be much easier to control. The truth of the matter is once you reach a stable weight, though, it's likely that blood pressures will drift up. And so in the long term, most people will come to need some medication over the course of life. You know, you've got a lot of different options for, for treatment. I don't know how many blood pressure medications there are, but there must be, what, 100 or who knows? How many? <laughs> there, there are more than 100. More than 100. Uh, wow. That's right. So That's how right. do you decide which medication for which patient? Well, they fall into broad classes, and there are about eight major classes. Uh, those that affect, for example, the kidney, which actually sets blood pressure, those so are, it helps regulate blood pressure? Absolutely. By uh, getting rid of volume fluid? Well, that's right. It allows, The way I describe it is that you can kind of trick the kidney into letting salt and water go at a lower blood pressure, and that's really what these diuretics do, long-acting, slow diuretics. Oh, and they're still the mainstay of treatment, diuretics, meaning getting rid of, of fluid to lower the fluid in the system? They're an important part of 
treating blood pressure for mm-hmm. sure. The other classes, things like what they call ACE inhibitors, they block the hormones from the kidney that also set blood pressure. There are a couple of others, what they call calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, and other mixed sympathetic blockers that tend to have a variety of effects, tend to slow people down a little bit. But the the nice part about the ACE inhibitors, calcium blockers, and to a less extent diuretics is they're really quite tolerable. They're really pretty free of side effects. So once you get into that routine, most people tolerate them pretty well. Problems that I know you have is getting patients to take the medication because this is the reason they call it the silent killer is that it, you don't have any symptoms. So if you don't have any symptoms, why do you have to take this medication? And what do you do? I mean, the statistics are pretty staggering, aren't they, with regard to the number of people who get a, a prescription for a blood pressure medication and don't take it? It's a real problem. Uh, you know, I think we've come a long way in the last couple of decades. Uh, about 70 or 80 percent of people are generally aware that their blood pressures are high or getting oh, is high. that right? That, it really is true. And there have been these, uh, the NHANES or National Health and Nutrition Survey, go into people's homes and, and find out what they know about their blood pressure. Probably only about half, though, are treated to goal levels. So there's still a long way to go. And it is true that people tend to start a medication and often, especially if they have any downside to it, will try to let it go. But I think that problem's gotten a lot better in the last few years, A, because they're cheap and because they're really pretty tolerable. Yeah, good to hear. Mm-hmm. A few months ago, uh, we learned about the SPRINT trial, and earlier in the program, the two of you alluded to it, and that has to do with maybe our lowest num- the lowest number that you want to have isn't low enough. Explain to us what the SPRINT trial is and what your thoughts are on it. Well, the SPRINT trial was, is a recent trial, and unfortunately, high blood pressure, we have more evidence than most conditions that... If you treat it effectively, you can really lower the rates of stroke and heart attack in a major way. What hasn't been clear is exactly how far should you go. And so this trial was specifically targeted at essential hypertension and set two goals, one below 140 over 90 and the other much lower, less than 120 on the systolic number. It takes more medications to get that low. And so part of this trial is to say, is it really worth pushing it that low in people without complications? Now, I have to tell you, they excluded people with diabetes and a few other conditions because those we know you can push too low and cause trouble. Uh, but the data, at least as the NIH has released it, is that the lower you go, you had a very appreciable additional benefit to lowering stroke rates. Mm. The reason it's a little controversial is because... The recent guidelines have sort of backed off intensive lowering of blood pressure, kind of recognizing that especially in older people, people over 80, for example, uh, you can push medications to where people get wobbly, and you really haven't gained much Mm. if you make them sick or fall down. So there's been a little bit of a relaxing of that intense pressure, especially in older people in the last year or two. The SPRINT trial tends to challenge that. All right. Uh, one thing we want to talk about is home blood pressure monitoring. I know it's uh, follow-up is extremely important because if you start on a medication, you want to know, you know, has it lowered my blood pressure or is my blood pressure too low? Are you a believer in, in checking your blood pressure at home? Absolutely. I, for a number of reasons. I think 
We're entering an age where people are able and anxious to take care of themselves, to take charge of their own measurements and modifications even. The other bit of this is that there is an office effect. People do have white coat or office hypertension. They walk in and whatever happens in that office may not represent their their real-life general procedures. And the data are pretty strong that home readings tend to parallel ambulatory blood pressure monitors and give a better prediction of the long-term risk. So if people are willing to to take the challenge of measuring their blood pressure at home, it gives them a much clearer picture of what their both their real risk is and whether they're achieving adequate goals. Is there a benefit to doing getting your own home machine or relying on that one at Target or Walmart? Well, we tend to favor having one at home. Mm-hmm. You can let you check at different times a day, and it's something much more reliable. Most people don't go to those stores all mm-hmm. the time. Um, and I think one can then get an idea of the day-night variation and what the effects of medication are. When they're not feeling good, is that blood pressure related or not? When, when, you, when someone says to you, where do I go to get my blood pressure monitor and what do I look for? Well, good. That's a, it's an important question because there are a whole bunch of them out there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. We tend to favor arm blood pressure readings. Really, all the data we have are really from arm readings. There are a bunch of others. You can get fingertip monitors and wrist monitors. We tend to think they're a bit less reliable, and they do measure something a little different than the upper arm blood pressure. That may change in, as we get more data, but all the data we have are with arm blood pressures and I think in our country, and certainly in Minnesota, you have to be careful to get the right size cuff. <laughs> big people, big arms, you need a big cuff. And that's a bit of a trap. You have to make sure you get it. A- so price isn't necessarily your guide as much as it is you want something with an arm cuff. That's, that's probably right. the main piece. Yep. Interesting. Do you think there'll be a point in time where you can look at your watch and it'll tell you what your blood pressure is? I mean, we're, we're getting closer, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty amazing, uh, isn't it? What, what, do you, what they can already do. Uh, that, may, that day may come. I don't think those instruments are yet available for blood pressure. Yeah, no, I don't think so either, but it would be great when I may not see it, but you might. Yeah. <laughs> I'll keep I'll make sure to get it on the show as soon as possible. Yeah. All right, Dr. Yeah. Stephen Texter yeah. has been our guest. He's an expert on high blood pressure, Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thanks, Dr. Texter. Very welcome. Thanks. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a medication developed to stop bleeding on the battlefield overseas is helping surgeons save blood in the OR here at home. We'll hear about a new role for TXA. And holiday and wintertime allergies. Can your Christmas tree be an allergy trigger? Say it ain't so. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. It's true, at holiday time, we get a little bit lax, or many of us do. We choose cookies over carrots, maybe have an extra glass of wine, and we skip exercise. But what if you're pregnant? Here are some do's and don'ts that can help keep you and your unborn baby healthy this holiday season. We'll start with the don'ts. One is alcohol. Mayo Clinic obstetrician Dr. Yvonne Butler-Toba says alcohol can cause fetal alcohol syndrome. 
So we recommend abstaining from alcohol, abstaining from smoking, um, and um, any other drugs. And this includes marijuana, as well as illicit drugs like cocaine and crack. Also, don't overdo the sweet or high-fat treats. As for do's, opt for healthy food choices such as fruits, veggies, whole grains, and lean meats. Get some exercise and be sure to get enough sleep. And finally, shoveling snow can be good exercise when it's done correctly, but it can be harmful if you try to take on more than you can handle. Here's some tips from doctors at Mayo Clinic Health System for injury-free snow shoveling. If you're inactive and have a history of heart trouble, talk to your doctor first. Drink plenty of water, dress warmly, and don't shovel while eating or smoking. Avoid caffeine or nicotine before you begin shoveling because this may place extra stress on the heart. So for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Bleeding during most surgeries is a common occurrence, a little too common. And no surprise there, but you might be surprised to know that there's a drug that can be given during some surgeries that can actually reduce bleeding and lessen the need for blood transfusions. The drug. Are you going to let me take a crack at this, or do you want to take it for me? You could just call it TXA or (laughs) tranexamic acid. All right, or TXA. Yeah, it's a clot stabilizer. In a recently published study in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesiology, TXA reduced by 40% the need for blood transfusions during hip and knee replacement surgery. TXA has been used on the battlefield to slow blood loss among soldiers that were wounded in combat. It's relatively inexpensive and is used in treating trauma cases in the emergency room. Here to fill us in on this drug, Dr. Donald Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is a surgeon and a trauma specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program again, Dr. Jenkins. Good to have you. Thank you very much, Dr. Shines. Love the program. And what about TXA? Is this something that is becoming more common in a surgeon's daily life? Dr. Shives must not use it, but you do? (laughs) Well, Dr. Shives might not know that he uses it, but uh, his anesthesiologists may be Uh, using it. Is that right? Absolutely. Is this new drug? The uh, drug is uh, not new. been around for uh, well over a decade. Uh, there was a uh, trauma study, an international trauma study, that really brought this to the fore uh, about six or seven years ago, and this was published in The Lancet. Over 20,000 trauma patients studied, and they showed an uh, all-cause uh, decrease in mortality for patients given TXA who were injured and bleeding. And it really caught our attention. The military wasn't knowledgeable about uh, this in the U.S., and we just happened to be co-located with a British unit in Bastion uh, in Lashkargah, Afghanistan. And uh, the Brits have a lot of experience in the use of TXA, and so Mm -hmm. we did uh, a little study, and that study called Matters, published in the Journal of Trauma, showed also a 30-day significant mortality benefit in those injured patients who got TXA compared to those who did not despite the fact that those getting the TXA were far more badly injured. You wouldn't expect that they would have better survival. They did. And uh, so that really got our attention in the trauma community. There are many places around the country now that are administering TXA not only in their operating room, not only in the trauma room, but in our hands and many others, we administer this drug in the pre-hospital setting. So in a helicopter, if Mm -hmm. a bleeding patient, trauma victim, hypotensive, getting blood transfusion. 
Hypotensive low blood pressure. Yep. Low blood pressure. They are going to get a dose of uh, TXA, and then we'll follow that with a second dose per protocol uh, in the uh, hospital. How does it work? It s- stabilizes the clot. When you begin to bleed, your body naturally tries to clot. You have a number of proteins and a whole cascade for this. Uh, and this drug stabilizes that clot so that the clot is stronger, stays in place longer, and prevents additional bleeding. Now, in this Canadian study, what they were showing was these were not injured patients. These patients, for the most part, were getting their joints replaced, hip replacements, knee replacements, and such. And uh, by administering the drug, the patients bled less and needed fewer transfusions. Hmm. And did you give you give the drug during the surgery, or can you give it before? Or how long does it last? The effects. So, so the the effect of the drug uh, requires multiple dosing over a period of time. Uh, it's uh, a short ha- short half life, short acting uh, uh, agent. And uh, the dosing regimen is different in different places, but typically they want to give a dose just about the time you're making an incision. And then depending upon the length of the surgery and how things are going, give a second dose, sometimes even a third dose. Uh, We just had a patient we worked with with Dr. Pete Rose uh, on Saturday uh, that we gave three additional doses to following a, a big operation where the patient did have bleeding from trauma. Hmm. If if uh, people, though, are prone to have blood clots, and that's when blood clots are not a good thing, that they're dangerous for them, wouldn't this be something that you would not want to do? So that's a really interesting question, because uh, in this study, if you think about the patients that benefited from the drug getting joint replacements, those typically are older patients who are more susceptible to heart attacks and strokes. Uh, but they didn't see any increase in those complications uh, using this medication. That doesn't now, make sense. <laughs> it's, well, uh, if it's, it's... a good thing, though. It, it yeah, is. It is a good thing. So if it's stabilizing clot at the uh, point where the bleeding is, it's not creating clot. So, so when we give patients substances to help them to clot, like plasma... Uh, then they can have unwanted clotting by administering TXA because the clot gets stronger. So we're cautious about this in our trauma patient population. If we think the patient is prone to stroke or myocardial infarction, uh, heart attack, then we'll really think hard about whether or not we should give the TXA uh, in that setting. Other than that, uh, like any drug, there must be some complications potentially associated with this one. What are those? The one complication that seems to uh, stick out uh, here is there have been some reports of seizures uh, when giving this uh, this medication. It's an infrequent uh, complication. Um, again, in this study, they didn't see a difference in clotting complications per se, uh, but one always has to consider Unwanted clots can form when you're trying to help someone to clot. Uh, so, you know, if you can prevent someone uh, from bleeding and needing transfusion, uh, all the better. It's uh, not only less expensive care, uh, but the transfusions themselves uh, have unwanted effects. Uh, they affect your immune system, and in rare circumstances, you can transmit a disease from the person who donated the blood to the recipient, uh, that is a very uncommon thing. The blood is very carefully tested, uh, but it does happen. What about cost? 
I mean, it's, this sounds like it's probably an expensive drug. In our hands, uh, giving a dose of TXA to a bleeding trauma patient costs us less than $100. Wow. Uh, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of over $1,000 for a single unit of transfusion. So no patent on this drug. I mean, this <laughs> drug's been around a long time, apparently. It's been around a long time. It is used not quite in an over-the-counter fashion, but really was designed uh, for stabilizing clot in patients with hemophilia. Hmm. And, uh, and especially at the time of getting dental work or uh, women who may have very heavy bleeding uh, on a monthly basis, it's helpful to stabilize clot in them as well, preventing anemia in, in, in those patients. Tranexamic acid. Uh, are, are you at a point where anybody who has uh, emergency surgery or in an ambulance or something like that, that anybody who is in, involved in a surgery like that would end up needing TXA? So in our hands, uh, we're going to reserve TXA use to patients who have proven bleeding at low blood pressure, uh, who are getting transfusion uh, that's life-saving. And uh, there are some cases where after an operation, uh, we can tell by the lab tests that we send uh, that a patient's clot is actually being consumed being evaporated at too fast of a rate promoting bleeding and we can give the TXA and watch the lab test normalize and the patient stop bleeding because the clot gets stabilized. You know we hear about all these drugs that are advertised on television and they all say go ask your doctor about this one and see if it might be right for you etc. Is this a, a medication that if you are going to have elective surgery you ought to ask your anesthesiologist about? I would definitely be asking my surgeon, my anesthesiologist, about uh, the use of TXA, uh, get from them what they think is the risk-benefit uh, uh, ratio. Uh, I would prefer personally to have TXA than to have a transfusion. Wow. And we've been talking about the clot-stabilizing drug TXA with Mayo Clinic surgeon and trauma specialist Dr. Donald Jenkins. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, are you allergic to the holidays? We'll talk with an allergy specialist about whether your Christmas tree is making you sneeze. We'd like to extend a special Mayo Clinic radio greeting to our listeners in Montreal, Canada, who hear us on CKDG-FM, Mike FM. And also our listeners in the Kansas City area on KCWJAM, Independence, Missouri. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Christmas trees, poinsettias, holly branches, maybe even some mistletoe. Those are (laughs) all things that a lot of us bring into our homes at this time of year to celebrate the holidays, as you know. Absolutely. And for most of us, well, I'm a little bit behind in my decorating, (laughs) but thanks for bringing that sore subject up. For most of us, these items become the backdrop for family gatherings and time with friends. But for some, these items can be unsuspecting allergy triggers, setting in motion the sneezing and runny noses that we usually associate with spring and summertime. In essence, Tom, you're allergic to the holidays. Well, here to talk about holiday and wintertime allergies is Mayo Clinic allergy specialist, Dr. Rohit Divakar. Welcome to the program, Dr. Divakar. Good to have you. Same here. Thank you. So say it isn't so. There aren't really people who are allergic to a spruce tree or a poinsettia or even mistletoe? So uh, allergies uh, is one diagnosis, but within that diagnosis are certain nuances, differences between patients. 
you have patients who are allergic to a specific thing that might grow in the spring then you have specific allergens that might be more prevalent in the winter time christmas trees can trigger reactions in some folks especially if there is dust or mold that's growing on them so oh. all of a sudden the tree has been maybe in the garage and you bring it so out an artificial tree you could be allergic to too it could be that you bring it into the house and suddenly you're exposed to a whiff of stuff that was staying mold, mold. Or exactly or? absolutely and the other big allergen trigger for folks who have the propensity to develop sensitivity is the fact that they're indoors so house dust mites roaches pet dander cats dogs If you spend a lot of time indoors you're going to be exposed to these things at a higher rate and that can set off some symptoms too. So you could say that you're allergic to the holidays if you don't want to spend time with your family but really you're not allergic to the holidays just different Correct. things. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> things that are more prevalent during the holidays. And how do you know what you are allergic to and is it important to know? I think it is important to know and the best way to figure out what it is that you're allergic to is to do a skin test or some kind of an allergy evaluation that tells us exactly what is it that you react to. And if that's a pretty simple outpatient office procedure that is I mean do you have a a, a Christmas tree allergen that you <laughs> we how, how do you know? Well um what there do you use? there are more than I would say 500 allergens that we can potentially test for. Not all of them are included in the panel that we have here because we usually deal with the most common things that are commonly seen. Our panel does have things like mold and this would be also true in other allergy practices. They look for molds and pollens including trees, weeds and grasses, including pet dander and uh, dust mites. So is it true then that somebody could be allergic to something year around and have to take some sort of uh, medication or something to alleviate the symptoms? Absolutely. Uh one common perennial allergen, meaning allergen that's present all the year round is your house dust mite. These are microscopic creatures you can't see them with the naked eye but they are there all the time in your bedding and the fabrics and you are exposed to these allergens all the year round their numbers might change a little bit as the as the months change but they are just there all the time so if you are very sensitive to these guys then you will have symptoms throughout the year and there isn't any way to get rid of the dust mites right Or not is there uh, well we can do a few things to reduce their numbers but we can't completely eliminate them but you have a test for that so we you have can say you you were allergic to dust mites correct when it comes to uh, seasonal allergies are most of your patients more have more trouble in the spring and summer or do they have more trouble in the winter um because they're indoors more so it depends on what they're sensitive to sure uh most of the time patients have what is called as polysensitization that means they are allergic to multiple things and if you are allergic to grasses then you would be allergic to other things that pollinate around that time and it's it all boils down to what it is that they are sensitive to sure and i guess what do you do about it so plenty of over the counter therapies are now available available uh, available that we can use uh there were medications that were over prescription before and now they are over the counter these could be something that they can try first hand there are also prescription medications that can be uh, they started if the allergist thinks that that's going to help their case would you say that the majority of people can control whatever they're allergic to uh with something over the counter in most situations yes it's certainly worth a try there is a profound proliferation of products on the market 
pills and sprays. Uh, it's certainly worth a try and see if it works or not. What are some other things that people can be allergic to at holiday time? So we spoke briefly about inhaled allergens. The other big area that we can potentially consider is things that people eat, um, especially holidays are a time where people get together, cook things, and make things for each other. So say, for example, a child is allergic to peanuts or cashews, and grandma makes these beautiful cookies that has these nuts in it. The child doesn't know what's in it. He goes to grandma's place Sneaks and has one. that. Exactly. <laughs> so this could potentially also be a cause of an allergic phenomenon during the holidays. We talked about... Uh, Airborne allergens uh, to begin, and I, I meant to ask you about filters that you could put, HEPA filters. Do those really work, and is it just in the furnace, or do you have to put them in different rooms? Or how, uh, What do you think? The studies, uh, I think, with HEPA filters are uh, some of them have shown to be of benefit, some perhaps not. It depends on the nature of the allergen itself. Now, for allergen like CAT, FEL-D1, that's the epitope in the allergen, it remains suspended in the air for a long period of time. Then in that case, it makes sense to have filters that can remove this allergen from the air. But allergens that are bulky, like house dust mite, uh, they usually settle down after a while. They are not suspended in the air. So then that might not be as beneficial for taking care of that particular problem. So if you're allergic to your cat, a uh, help filter might help. Might help. Or if you don't want to get rid of the cat. Uh, I have not come across anybody who wanted to get rid of their pet. Well, See, you I haven't been to our house. Whether it comes to food allergies or for the airborne type allergies, what are some other things you can do to minimize? You get the HEPA filter. What other things could you try? So um, HEPA filter is but one of the many, many uh, options, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as the first. Uh, the first thing is obviously to figure out what is it that set things off. So knowing what you're allergic to is great because then you can be active about avoiding some of these triggers. Uh, if uh, these are inhaled allergens and you have a history of asthma, then make sure that your medications are up to date, you are up on your refills. Holidays can be a bad time with closed pharmacy hours. The office oh. physician hours, hours are also not uh, uh, complete. So if you're running out of meds, make sure you have everything on time and you have it with you when you're going for holidays. So it sounds like the bottom line is you can be allergic to just about anything. It's important in your mind to try to figure out what indeed you are allergic to, so hopefully you can avoid it and maybe tailor treatment to that particular allergy. And I think you also told us that the majority of people who have allergies can get good relief with over-the-counter medications. And if not, then you probably have some stronger, different things that you can prescribe. Absolutely. And are you willing to write a letter for Dr. Scheib's family that says they should get rid of the cat? Doc <laughs> doctor recommended? I think I'm allergic. <laughs> We've been talking about holiday and wintertime allergies with Mayo Clinic allergy specialist Dr. Rohit Devakar. Thank you so much for being on the program again, Dr. Devakar. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.